0: Hi, my name's Tori, and I wish I knew more about blood products.
1: Hi, my name's Letitia. I wish I knew more about taking care of myself when starting shift work.
2: Hi, my name is Olivia. I wish I would know more about how to work as in the team and solve conflict.
0: Hello, welcome to Five Things, the nursing podcast from the Royal Brisbane and Women's Hospital. My name is Liz Crowe.
1: I'm Jesse Spur and this is a podcast by For and With, the amazing nurses and health professionals in our corner of the world. We hope to connect with a global community as we move from surviving to thriving. Welcome to Five Things.
0: Hello, my name is Liz Crow. And I'm Jesse Spur. And today we are joined by Angela Spencer, who is the CNC for epilepsy here at the RBWH. She's going to talk to us about five things to do with seizures. Welcome, Angela. Thank you for that beautiful welcome and thank you for having me.
1: Absolute pleasure. <laughs> Uh, this is definitely a topic that strikes fear into the heart of many a new grad and novice nurse alike and um, uh, was one that was heavily requested when Liz was doing the rounds on in terms of the needs analysis for the podcast. So, very happy to have you here. No pressure at all. <laughs> um, thinking back to, not speaking of novice nurses, we'd love to know sort of your origin story and where you got started in your nursing journey.
2: Well, uh, that was a couple of centuries ago. Um, <laughs> But uh, started my epilepsy journey. Uh, I guess sidelining it through um, working in the operating theatre suite in the paediatric hospital, which was the Mater Children's Hospital back then, for about 18 years. And um, you know, once you work there for a few years, you start to learn about um, you know neurosurgery and work with the neurosurgeons and do some of the big resective uh, cases, craniofacials, etc. Uh, And then I wandered off into outpatients into the epilepsy world and worked in neurosciences uh, for um, probably from about 2007 until I came here to 2016 and uh, took on this uh, fabulous role, which I'm ever so grateful for and love it every day of my life. I'm passionate about this subject, you may find out. Um, But the operating uh, suite uh, really, I think, helped me understand airway management, uh, which back in those days, you you know, we were colloquially say that we were scrub scout and recovery because you actually had to be proficient in all those roles after our space and uh, certainly on weekends because you had no one else to rely on but yourselves as a a small team of nurses, three nurses, four at most, if you were lucky – Um, And we'd have an anaesthetic tech, but they weren't nursing. They were um, a technician, so to speak. So we had to learn uh, to, uh, you know, be by ourselves sometimes out in recovery while we had all the doors open and we could scream for help if the patient decided they weren't going to breathe or, you know, recover as they were. So it became a natural progression to be able to work in this space and help people understand how best to manage seizures and um, teach people how to not be so frightened about seizures. And yes, it is definitely very scary when you first see it. But once you know and have the education, and I'm hoping that this podcast will allay some of those fears.
0: Perfect. So let's
2: start with your number one. What are seizures? Okay, so seizures... The International League Against Epilepsy is one of our fabulous websites and organisations and according to them, what we call a seizure is a transient occurrence of symptoms and or signs due to abnormal, excessive or synchronous neuronal activity of the brain. So that is (laughs) (laughs) a mouthful. mouthful, (laughs) So there's something very abnormal going on in the brain, whether it's a generalised or a focal seizure depends on what you see and what you can uh, witness as a person or what you can feel as a person having that seizure.
0: So can I ask, what's the difference between
2: epilepsy and seizures? I guess epilepsy is defined as a disease of the brain and it has a couple of caveats. So um, at least two unprovoked or reflex seizures occurring more than 24 hours apart... One unprovoked reflex seizure and a probability of further seizures, similar to general recurrence risk, at least 60% after two unprovoked seizures occurring over the next 10 years, or that epilepsy diagnosis. So in short, uh, it's a brain disorder that predisposes the person to... Have seizures, and seizures are obviously a symptom, or epilepsy is a symptom of a potentially underlying disorder that you know can manifest in a number of different ways, both from metabolic and to right into structural um, concerns or issues that have caused it.
0: Okay, and I, I don't know if this is right, but I used to try and explain it to families this way that you've got to imagine there's el- electrical activity in the brain. And that a seizure is either too much or too little activity. Yes. Is that correct? That is very much so. And I think that's
2: why we say excessive or synchronous neuronal activity. So it's abnormal activity, either too fast or too slow, causing the person, those neurons in the cortex then to have a flare up of abnormal activity.
0: Perfect. Awesome. So your number two is types of seizures. Can you explain to us, please, like what what are the different types of seizures and how would we know? Okay, well, that is uh, a very wonderful question because
2: they're – Basically, the International League Against Epilepsy again.
1: Um, it's, such, it's such a cool name. I know. <laughs> a, a league against It's like the Justice League. I <laughs> know. Oh, that's exactly what it
2: feels like on the superheroes trying yeah. to do the best for, for people with epilepsy. So, um, what the basic classification falls into, broadly speaking, two. So, generalised epilepsy and focal epilepsy. So, generalised, as the name implies, both hemispheres are impacted by the abnormal, abnormal activity. Yeah. And you can have motor... Activity, meaning jerking, stiffening of limbs, that sort of uh, types of symptomology. And uh, for focal seizure, depending on where in the brain, usually it's impacted one hemisphere, and it depends on where in that particular hemisphere that it gets activated uh, that you would see symptoms. So, for example, in the temporal lobe, some people can uh, start to... Do some funny mouthing um, movements, and uh, uh, you know maybe do some clicking noises with their tongues. Some people can uh, almost sound like they're spitting, other people will start to fiddle with their fingers or with their clothing. Uh, so there's just a, a wide variety, as many cells as there are in the, in the brain as to what can happen and that can progress from one thing to the to the next step to the next particular parts in the brain. ...that are being activated. So uh, that is why we sort of try and sort of get people... Uh, ...get people's underst- or explanations of how they look. Um, and we love it when people bring in video. I was going to say, the video evidence. is so helpful, it isn't is it? It is hugely helpful. Um, because there's another event that I would love to people to understand... ...is non-epileptic events... And they are very often um, confused and treated as if they're uh, a generalised seizure. For example, the most common one that we know is bilateral tonic-clonic seizures. So tonic means stiffening of all four limbs, usually synchronous. And the clonic is the rapid synchronous jerking Mm. um, of the limbs. And people that probably uh, don't see as many seizures as we do in the epilepsy world... Uh, can very easily mistake these um, events for being epileptic in nature when when they're not, and that can lead to lots of anti-seizure medications being added. People have been known to be intubated and flown from rural areas into, you know, the bigger centres, that's both for paediatrics and adults, that this has happened because people haven't recognised that there's a little bit of a difference. So um, both can be treated... (laughs) And but the uh, video is very helpful. Very helpful to be able to. Use. Sometimes it's as simple as differentiating between that, uh, a, a seizure and a non-epileptic event, which uh, has occurred in our practice. We had one patient through COVID that was supposed to be transferred up from Tasmania. Yeah. They sent us a number of videos and we could immediately see that they were non-epileptic in nature. And so the transfer was obviously cancelled and other treatment was instigated.
1: I'm really curious on uh, what sort of things, like, tip you off to a non-epileptiform seizure.
2: The asynchronous movements usually, yeah. the stopping and starting of movements, um, pelvic thrusting, uh, is unusual in a bilateral tonic-clonic seizure. You may see that in a, for example, a frontal lobe seizure potentially, uh, but in a bilateral tonic-clonic seizure, it is all very synchronous and stereotypical so it'll start and you can almost see it finish most of those bilateral tonic clonic seizures last one to three minutes some of the non-epileptic vents can last way way longer some you know can do it for you know over an hour wow waxing and waning in between and uh, it it's very sad to, to to see that um being misdiagnosed yeah,
1: yeah. and i'm i'm guessing I'm I, I, like me that you're not a fan of the term of pseudo seizures which gets thrown around no, no, no.
2: <laughs> we, we're really trying to get away from that yeah. because that has uh, you know the, the research has shown that that is quite judgmental and mm. um you know what we're wanting to help the patient with is is build a really good therapeutic relationship to be able to give them the tools to be able to go forth and uh, remove these events from their life and if you start to, you know, bandy those terms or uh, psychoseizures, hysterical seizures, some of those other things that we've heard over the years, uh, it doesn't help the patients in the long run and what we're wanting to do is give them the best um, evidence-based medicine and, you know, help them forward.
0: So one of the things I really picked up on that's important is often people think that seizures do have to have some movement or some shaking, don't they? But they absolutely don't. No. So, for example, um,
2: a generalised absence seizure, as I say, it's generalised, so both hemispheres impacted. And uh, the person – and it's mainly in the paediatric sector that we find these. Yes, some of patients do come uh, with what – you know, if they've got some epilepsy syndromes, that they uh, will have them in adulthood too, but it's predominantly, as I say, in paediatrics. They will just be a brief or very rapid onset and offset 10, 15, 30 seconds at maximum uh, where the person just arrests what they're doing. So they might be, you know, sitting there reading something out, you know, doing homework or whatever, and then suddenly they stop And, you know, you may get a little bit of eyelid fluttering with that and then uh, away they go, they're back on It's like they've skipped a beat, isn't it? it? I've seen
0: absence seizures. Yes, yes.
2: yes. Um, Unfortunately, a lot of people confuse absence seizures for focal seizures. So um, uh, focal seizures can look a little bit like that initially. But if you're going 30 seconds, 40 seconds, one minute... Um, with uh, you know other features, you know fidgeting, mouthing type movements, it's unlikely to be an absence seizure. It's more likely to be a focal seizure. So I would love to get that <laughs> out there in the in the general public. Perfect.
1: While we're just before we depart, the types of seizures. Um, is there any sort of relationship between the postictal phase or the types of postictal syndromes you see with types of seizures?
2: Uh, So, again, I think that's so individualised on the person. Like some people um, can uh, post-ictally look like they're still having a seizure um, and there's still some funny motor movements going on or potentially they can get quite aggro, some people, and um, still sort of maintain a glassy-eyed look. So, uh, yes, there's sort of differences with that... But it's usually particularly different people, and potentially also the uh, the length of time that the seizure goes for. So the longer it goes for, the more likely you're going to get all of those confusions and the, the um, you know difficulty getting back to their baseline uh, GCS um, when you uh, you know when they some yeah. the, when they come yeah the seizure stops
0: yeah okay. So number three, you're going to talk to us about the common triggers for seizures. What are they? So if you've got a
2: diagnosis of epilepsy, a lot of our patients will say sleep deprivation. So Mm. I think also anxiety and depression and those sort of comorbid mental health conditions can play a role because I think it probably affects sleep. Mm. So I think if your sleep is disturbed, we hypothesise that that will uh, have an impact and potentially lower your seizure threshold. ...as well as massive doses of alcohol. Yeah, I've seen that. Um, So uh, the motto with most of our epileptologists... ...we recommend no more than two standard drinks in any 24 hours. Which obviously for our young people sometimes is a little bit difficult to adhere to. But... uh, (laughs) What we really try and get them to understand is self-management, and so you know, keeping sleep deprivation to a minimum, um, alcohol, and obviously other illicit drugs. You know, a lot of people will tell us these days, "Oh, you know, I smoke a couple of cones before bed to get a good night's sleep," and and you know, in in reality, they're telling us they're you know probably up to 20 cones a day, etc. And, you know, we sort of... Not good for anyone. <laughs> Not well, good for it's anyone. It's generally <laughs> an
1: underestimate, isn't it? Co- Is co- it? <laughs> correct, <laughs> correct. Wow, that's
2: a lot. And and so we try and sort of explain to them, that actually, uh, marijuana in two higher doses uh, has a, a convulsant effect, so making it more likely for people to have seizures. Mm. So I think it's a bit of a mis- misnomer out there mm. in the community to say, oh, you know, I smoke a couple for my, for my epilepsy to keep my epilepsy at bay where it's... It's, uh, it could a actually have factor. the opposite
0: yeah. effect. Couldn't the weather impact your – like if it's really hot or
2: – Probably the heat is is a common and certainly with some of the medications. So um, if a patient, for example, has got to tapiramate on board, especially in the paediatric sector, we used to ensure that they, um, you know, maintained either an air-conditioned environment or – Cooling vests, things like that, because uh, the tapiramate can have an impact on their heat regulation. So, yes, obviously, if you get uh, overheated, that uh, potentially can cause seizures. And, you know, that is very common, um, yeah, what our patients tell us.
0: Yeah. Um, I guess the other big trigger is illness, isn't it?
2: But indeed, yes. So especially vomiting and diarrhoea, Uh, No big um, surprise there, but uh, because obviously the anti-seizure medications aren't absorbed as they normally would, so then you have a a real drop in, you know, you might miss a couple of doses of anti-seizure medications just purely through the intercurrent illness that you've got, but also just missing one or two doses. Some people are so sensitive that they can have a seizure just by missing one or two doses of medications And then others can sort of miss a day and, and, you know, not worry too much. But again, we always um, educate and caution them to keep a nice regular 12 hours between anti-seizure medication doses and to, you know, make sure that they do take it all. So, yes, you're very right about that. If you
0: don't have epilepsy, what are some common triggers for seizures in someone who's normally well? So probably one of the most
2: um, common things are head knocks. So you see that on the footy field. You know, they clash with their heads, the poor kids, and then you sort of see some convulsive movements on the field. So that's quite common. doesn't mean somebody's got epilepsy unless, you know, um, it was bad enough to get them potentially into ICU, um, you know, and with a brain injury. Uh, But those sort of things, um, again, uh, any sort of electrolyte imbalance, so, you know, blood sugar's going up or too low is very common. Um, So people who drink quite a bit of alcohol, if they withdraw from the alcohol, um, benzodiazepine withdrawal, if that's done too fast, uh, that can cause seizures. So, yes, there are a number of different things
0: um, that can, you know, cause seizures that aren't epilepsy. Yeah. So interesting. Your number four is the most common medications and types of interventions and interestingly even some of our very experienced resuscitation teams around the world were saying how frightening they find it I guess when they come across someone who's having a seizure when you don't know the history. So can you talk us through yeah common medications and type of interventions please.
2: So usually, both uh, in the community and in the hospital, we use a benzodiazepine uh, called midazolam. Um, so in the community, people uh, will be prescribed midazolam if they have a tendency to have a bilateral tonic-clonic longer than five minutes. Um, if they have a you know regular those sort of seizures regularly, uh, and it is not something to do with missing anti-seizure medications or not being on the right treatment for their Type of epilepsy, um, then they will be um, often, and we will teach people how to give it safely in the community setting, either intranasally or buccally. And uh, we go through that very carefully with people and their families so that they can understand because it is a, a potentially dangerous drug, obviously. Um, somebody can stop breathing if they get too much, uh, and you know, we really need uh, people to only get it when it is really, really necessary and and when it's the best for their type of epilepsy syndrome. Um, And so usually IV in hospitals uh, for all of our patients that are known to have epilepsy that come into our epilepsy monitoring unit, we have three beds up on 7B North, that um, we uh, use those beds and video telemetry to either characterise different seizure events Um, or try and tease out is this an epileptic versus non-epileptic or do they have both or uh, surgery, uh, assessing them for potential epilepsy surgery is the other big one and uh, all of those patients will, um, as a first-line treatment, will be given midazolam IV, 2.5 milligrams we usually start off with Um, and look, nine times out of ten those seizures will then stop we don't like to wait past five minutes. So normally in our epilepsy monitoring unit, the quicker you get the midazolam into that person, hopefully within three minutes, um, the the quicker it works. Once you get to about five minutes, it's a little bit more harder to stop some of the seizures uh, because, you know, the brain is just
1: on a roll, yeah. so to speak. So um, And the receptors start to internalise into the correct. neurons, don't they? So they, there's nothing for the... Yes. To to yeah. yeah. So, so the
0: faster that the bedside nurse can yes. recognise a seizure, Correct. get them a DSLM, the Correct. better the outcome.
2: Absolutely, absolutely. That's not to say that everyone has to panic because we really, really say do not panic because yeah. panic spreads like wildfire through yeah. the team. <laughs> <laughs> and look, people don't die. Um Mostly through, you know, a brief seizure, whether it's a bilateral tonic-clonic or a focal or anything like that. So don't panic. You know, make sure that the patient uh, you've removed all the dangerous objects around from the like they've got knives or forks or laptops or something around their neck. Remove that. Uh, make sure you're safe. Obviously, if you walk by a room and find somebody having a, you know, a seizure, um, make sure that everything is safe. But just um, uh, gently, you know get other team members, you know, press your buzzers to get other people in to help. For a bilateral tonic-clonic seizure, we really urge people to get them on their side as quick as possible because a lot of people, you know, in the older age group have got gastroesophageal reflux disease or if they've just been eating, um, you want to get them on their side so that their airway can maintain as clear as possible um, especially when, so we don't want people to suction, you know, use a Yankasaka, you know, down their throat. Uh, just get them on the side, uh, because that is probably the safest uh, method until they stop seizing. And then, yes, you can potentially, uh, you know, suction out a little bit of the buckled space, but don't sort of go down to <laughs> the larynx yeah. and, and and suck there. So everything nice and calm. You don't need to slap oxygen on immediately it's probably, uh, you know, more important to get them on their side because Mm -hmm. if they're in a tonic um, phase of the seizure, obviously that impacts their chest wall and it makes it very difficult for any oxygen to get in anyway because, you know, the chest wall isn't moving normally.
1: It's more like breath holding rather than hypoxia. Correct. Correct.
2: Exactly right. Um, Certainly, you know, if if after 10 minutes, uh, you know, once everything else is settled and everyone is... Um, you know, got the midazolam in and they're still seizing, yeah, put the oxygen on, absolutely. And potentially if you don't know that, you know, what the history is of epilepsy, then you would probably go again to um, something like doing blood sugars, just making sure that there isn't any, you know, electrolyte imbalances that are going on. But uh, one of our beautiful uh, epileptologists, Dr John Fairmuan, has just um, completed uh, an epilepsy status um, plan or algorithm for the RBWH. So that hopefully will come and uh, give those people that aren't very OFA or, uh, you know, people that are OFA, but give them a step-by-step guide of what to do.
0: It's interesting, isn't it? Probably more than any other illness or disease, the amount of myths around seizures, you know, like hold their tongue, put a spoon in their mouth. Please, no. You know, where has all that come from and how do you, you know, we've had decades of education saying don't do things like that. How has it been able to persist? Um, I think
2: epilepsy is still one of those uh, disorders that's not well known. People don't, I think, uh, realise how common it is. You know, like we've got 28,000... Um, Queenslanders that have got active epilepsy, Um, you know, 500,000 people around the world have got it. It's actually more common than MS, motor neuron and, you know, Parkinson's disease together. Um, And however, you know, 60 to 70% of people are really well treated with one or two maybe anti-seizure medications it's the other 30 to 40% of people that we call drug-resistant epilepsy patients, and they're the ones that have, you know, ongoing uh, issues with, with seizures and that. But I think because it is not well known, despite it being so common, um, that people still have these word-of-mouth tales that are going around in the community. And that's why this sort of podcast is fabulous and... Uh, You you know, we regularly give our new nurses that come out uh, and start working on 7B North workshops to help explain all of this uh, so that they
1: go out then and,
2: and, you know, spread the word, absolutely.
1: So that the mythology doesn't fill in the blanks.
2: Yes, (laughs) absolutely. Because I still often get people asking about those sort of things, you know, what about swallowing their tongue? And, you know, you explain to them, look, it's very you know, firmly implanted, you're not going to swallow it. What you need to do is maybe a little bit of jaw support.
1: I did pick up on something and we're not going to go into it in depth on this podcast, which is status epilepticus. And you alluded to a local pathway guideline that's being launched at the moment um, at the hospital. And most hospitals or health services will have something similar, particularly if they've got an intensive care unit Mm. on site. So for the curious people or the people that work in I guess high exposure seizure areas, um, that's worth a look, but we're not going to dive into it. <laughs> no, <them>. fair <laughs> to, enough. <laughs> to, that would be a longer podcast. Could that's Should it. we define
0: then what is staticus epilepticus?
1: <laughs> Status epilepticus. epilepticus? Oh, yeah.
0: I'm so close. <laughs> <laughs> <You're> so
1: close. <laughs> you sounded like a Roman gladiator, didn't
2: it? <laughs> So, as I alluded to before, it's the five minutes that we start to take something serious. So, if um, the seizure is still going ahead, a bilateral tonic-clonic, so a generalised seizure impacting both hemispheres, if that is still going at five minutes and you've given the midazolam and it doesn't look like it's going to abort by itself, that's when you would then give a second dose of um, midazolam uh, according to the protocol But usually 20 to 30 minutes, if they're still seizing, that is considered a status epilepticus and that's when we get the big guns.
0: My, My final question on this, and I promise, is like how common now is surgical options for people who have... ...epilepsy that won't be controlled by medication. Is this something we're going to see more of into the future? Thank you so much for asking that. (laughs) Because so many
2: um, people that aren't familiar with epilepsy surgery... ...have got patients in their clinics... ...whether it be the GP or other neurologists... ...that aren't aware that uh, if you um, have failed... ...to appropriately chosen anti-seizure medications... Uh, and at the correct doses uh, to get, you know, to therapeutic dose, um, for whatever reason you don't get that seizure uh, cessation, Uh, that gives you drug-resistant epilepsy tag. So if you have a focal seizure disorder, so uh, what we look at up in 7B North in our epilepsy monitoring unit, we will then investigate to see if there is only one particular Spot whether so the most common um, uh, temporal lobe epilepsy is hippocampal sclerosis, so that means it's a bit of scarring in the hippocampus, uh, and that is highly epileptogenic, so that uh, can then be surgically removed and you uh, you know up to 70% seizure cessationals, which is fantastic. So, we want people to come sooner rather than later. So we don't want them to get to the 10th anti-seizure medication trial um, when they could come be referred into to us and let's have a look at you see if, if there is a possibility. And extratemporal lobe seizures too. So for example, uh, one of the other things or common tissue that sparks epilepsy is focal dysplasia, so a little bit of an abnormal tissue cells in the brain that can be successfully removed
0: as well. So surgery is a really possible often a positive pathway these days. Absolutely.
2: Look, in paediatrics, they would do everything they could. If there was a surgical target, that is what you would go for. In adults, once adults have been seizing for a very, very long time, it's surgery and the anti-seizure medications that are hopefully going to keep those people seizure-free.
0: And number five then is the difference between acute and chronic how far have we come in terms of seizure management Then you know, even in the last 20 years? And I guess the second part of that question is, where do you think this could go? Like, you know, are seizures something we're going to see less of in the future, more of, or we'll see the same amount but our treatment options will be varied? Oh, that is the $64,000 question, <laughs> really. With the, the chronic, so if we're
2: talking about um our patients that are drug-resistant epilepsy, so they are continuously seized despite multiple medications. We've got a few other um, things. so here at the Royal we do do drug trials of different um, anti-seizure medications. We also implant vagal nerve stimulators um, as part of our therapy uh, for epilepsy. Uh, deep brain stimulation will come around um, soon as well. Uh, So we've got a couple of patients that have been in uh, trials down in Melbourne that have come back to us and have got uh, the implanted deep brain stimulation for epilepsy. So, yes, there are a lot of things uh, that, you know, it's not the end of the road. There are other things that we can... Um, do depending on what the underlying cause of the epilepsy is. For the last 100 years we've been producing more anti-seizure medications and it will continue on and, as I say, with other modalities like neurostimulation, like stimulators being implanted in different ways. So the DBS is very new here in Australia for epilepsy treatment. And I guess, um, you know, some other colleagues down south are looking at other things like uh, implanted devices that will hopefully uh, elude or allow people to understand when a seizure is coming so that they can get themselves either in a safe position or, uh, you know, it can work out. Is it, uh, you know, one of the common seizure triggers or is it something something else that uh, can be uh, ameliorated? So, yeah, it's uh, – there is hope, yeah. absolutely. Every time we go to the big conferences, it, it's fantastic to see the work that is done all over the world and also here in Australia. It's it's absolutely fantastic what, what brains we've got in this field to, to hopefully help.
0: Okay. Now, my last question. If I'm a nurse on the ward and I've got someone who either has a known epilepsy syndrome or has a seizure – unknown and we're finding it difficult to get it under control do we contact you know do people contact your service you know what what's the kind of pathway what's the role that you play or do you have a role in within inpatients um so certainly on our epilepsy board on 7b north we definitely um
2: you know have our epilepsy fellow we have our epileptologists that are around and that yes absolutely if you've got a a patient seizing and it's not abating in the appropriate you know with the appropriate medications then yes absolutely people will be asked to um, assist and give their advice and you know help out with that. Um, On other wards uh, so uh, our consultants or our fellows will get asked to consult you know throughout the hospital so it's not unusual that they you know see people up in dem and all over the wards and 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 things like that as part of a consultancy model of care that we would go in and they would go in and advise on on what to do
1: perfect so i guess one of the big things that stood out to me is there's an approach Appropriate way to get video of, a, of someone who sees um, you many wards will have like an ipad or something for wound photography and other things like that and that's probably the best yes. device to use rather than a personal device absolutely um, <laughs> perfect <laughs> so that's definitely something that jumped oh. out to me that is um a very different space that we're now operating in where we can grab an absolutely. ipad and, and obviously not leave the person seizing to go and get the iPad. No, 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 that's exactly right.
2: (laughs) (laughs) And that's what we sort of say out in the community too. Please try and get it, but only if it's safe. to. If there is somebody else that's not doing anything that can video the person from sort of head to toe so that we can see exactly what all the movements are. Because
1: our untrained eye will probably end up in a fairly dodgy description of what (laughs) what we saw.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Perfect. (laughs) All right, Angela. I'm going to have a go at summarising what we've learned today. And given I've already been mocked once, let's just say I'm nervous. All right. So number one, what are seizures? So seizures are. I'm just going to say in layman's yep. terms, uh, there's a, there's a problem in the brain, either too much activity or too yep the electrical activity in the brain. Yep, that's right, there's a yeah. problem. Yeah. And the difference between epilepsy and seizures is. Seizures is the symptoms. It's what we're seeing, and ep- epilepsy is like the syndrome or the collection the, of
2: the, the ability for the brain or the, the the brain is will continue to have seizures for some underlying cause.
0: Perfect. The common triggers for seizures um, can be, you know, dehydration, drug and alcohol. Sleep deprivation is one of the biggest ones you said. I guess also people being subtherapeutic with their medications, but it can be the weather. There can be a number of things where people may end up in hospital because uh, they're having an exacerbation of their of their seizures.
2: Hormonal is also one uh, for women, catamenial epilepsy, sometimes around uh, their periods.
0: So would it be the same with pregnancy and menopause then? Absolutely, yes. And we've got two
2: wonderful doctors um, that work specifically in the epilepsy with women and epilepsy in pregnancy and take them through Uh, the pregnancy journey and uh, afterwards as well.
0: Number four was the most common medication and types of intervention. So midazolam is our kind of go-to drug with uh, any sort of kind of, I guess… Acute seizure, yep, Yep. absolutely. Perfect. Um, And that there is a growing range of types of interventions is what you've mentioned. Um, And you were giving a big shout out that if people have been resistant to medication, to, you know, abort I believe is the term of um, seizures to please, you know, look at surgical options and come down and see a specialist. And in the acute setting, number five, so difference between acute and chronic. So an acute seizure may happen when someone is hypoglycemic or has a severe illness or has had a traumatic brain injury, whereas the chronic are the epileptic uh, type collection syndromes, I don't yeah, know, um, yeah. that that we'll see. Uh, but the immediate um, interventions are the same. Yes. It's just if there's a prolonging of the symptoms that we'll yes, see a change in interventions.
2: To, certainly in hospital if, um, it, you know, it's going – bilateral tonic-clonic is still going at five minutes, call a moot and uh, get the airway team. So airway management is what we will, uh, you know – uh, advice to call okay
0: perfect that's a great podcast thanks very much for joining us today on five things thank you so very much cheers
2: cheers
1: the royal brisbane and women's hospital five things nursing podcast acknowledges the Turrbal and yagara as the first nations owners of the lands we now tread we pay respect to their elders laws customs and creation spirits we recognise that these lands have always been places of healing, teaching and learning. We also wish to acknowledge the First Nations people of the lands of our global community and encourage our listeners to seek out, listen and learn from the knowledge held in your shared space. As well as all major podcast outlets, you can find us at fivethingsnursing.podbean.com. Please also subscribe and give us a rating on your listening platform of choice. This helps others find the podcast. And finally, if you'd like to connect with Liz or myself on Twitter, we can be found at Liz Crow 2. And for me, it's inject underscore orange. We would absolutely love to hear your thoughts, ideas, or feedback. Thanks for listening to 5 Things